Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 1 Samuel 22, verse 5. You'll note that there are some typos in the bulletin. But 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. As you find that, either on page 244 in the Pew Bibles or your own Bibles, I'll just remind you that last week, David came to Jonathan to confirm that Saul was indeed set upon taking his life. And Jonathan interposed to help David to covenant with him for his good. And at the end of last week's passage, told him the truth, that indeed Saul was intent upon taking David's life. And so with tears and weeping, sent his friend off to escape. So we pick up after David's departure from Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. Let's attend to God's word with the help of God's spirit. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzvah of Moab. 
And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your word. As we come and consider your word and practices that are not part of our daily life and strange names in distant lands, Lord, would you make familiar to us your presence and your will, your teaching and your provision. Gracious God, by your spirit, not by me, would you instruct and help your people. Would all that falls short be quickly forgotten. All this I pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So let me ask, which fairy tale is your favorite? And when I mean fairy tale, uh, not necessarily the dark ones of uh, the Grimm brothers, but of the princess variety. You know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, maybe the more modern version of Rapunzel. Which one is your favorite? The thing is, if you're going to make a decision, the decision is really just going to be about small issues of style, small circumstances or events, because the reality is the stories are pretty much the same. You, you have a, a beautiful, kind, often having a background of rich damsel or princess who has fallen sway under an evil stepmother or an evil witch, and is in need of rescue, the damsel in distress. And then there is a helper, often a fairy, but what the magic or the helpmates do is they allow this damsel in distress, this princess, to be rescued. And who comes to her rescue? A dashing hero, right? Usually royalty, usually handsome with a very pointed or square chin on a noble steed, brave of battle, rich, a prince, to rescue the damsel in distress. Even if animated fairy tales aren't your thing, there are plenty of examples of this same story in romantic comedies, in historic literature, in the movies that we entertain ourselves with. The thing is, when that story is told over and over before our eyes and in our hearing, that can begin to shape the way that we view the world and that we view ourselves. First of all, it can often shape our expectations romantically when we are younger. We long to be recognized as the beautiful person with the heart of gold who just needs that dashing figure to come along. So we either want to be that dashing, heroic, handsome figure that comes along, or, or we desire to be that person rescued and, and, and acknowledged as beautiful and worthy of the work of rescue. But not just romantically, we can begin to look at ourselves through that lens in, in, even in our business practices or in our political expectations. Where, where we can say we, we, are, we are good company with, with a heart of gold, 
with good business practices and just this, this, evil, uh, this evil new law that's been passed or this evil competitor is getting in our way. Everything would be golden. We're all set if the right figure would come and help us. Or we might view ourselves as that dashing figure to come in that, to rescue people, that that struggling business, that that poor community just needs us to come in and rescue them. Politically, we can say, we're good people with the right ideas. We just need a dashing hero to come in to, to fight the dragon of the opposing side, and then everything will be okay. We can live happily ever after. Back and forth between the damsel who is deserving of rescue or desire to be the dashing hero, we can look at our lives through that lens. But do we live in a fairy tale? Plenty of historians and academics and regular people claim that the Bible is fictional, that it's made up. But what we read in 1 Samuel 21 and the beginning of 22 is not a fairy tale, at least not of the type that we've been discussing. It's not Cinderella. It's not Sleeping Beauty. David in this passage is no handsome and heroic Prince Charming dashing into battle on his white steed. It confronts our understanding of the future king and how we relate to him. Who is the rescuer? And who are the rescued? As we follow David through this passage, as he's on the run, we are confronted with the picture of the king that we want. And whether or not the king that we tend to want is the king that we actually should want. What is the picture of this future king, the one that God has anointed through his servant Samuel? Well, let's follow along to see what it says about him. From last week, we know that he's fleeing Saul's wrath. Saul is intent to put him to death. And so he begins to flee from the region where Saul reigns to nearby Nob, which appears to be the main worship site of the day. And so he comes there, and there he's greeted by Ahimelech, the priest. The priest is scared because David is alone. David is a, a military champion. Uh, uh, most people would understand that the placement that David has in the court would be akin to the head of the royal guard. And so David comes without the normal uh, amount of the military that you would expect and without Saul with him. And so the priest is, is afraid. He's trembling with fear. The absence of Saul could indicate that something tragic has happened to the king, or that there has been some great military fiasco. But David tells him he's on, he's on an urgent mission from the king. Now, Ahimelech is brother to King Saul's chaplain. And this is probably why David doesn't just say, I'm on uh, the run from King Saul. But he says that he's on an urgent mission from the king. And, and people would argue, is he being overtly deceptive and saying, making up a mission? Or is he uh, being a little bit crafty? Because we know that David often refers to Yahweh as king. And so is he talking about the Lord as king who sent him on this urgent business? And it's up to Ahimelech to understand who he means. We don't truly know. But we know that David is in a tight space. 
And he gives just the information that he thinks is appropriate to give because he knows his life is in danger, even potentially through the priest. David comes to him, though, with a request. He asks for food. He asks specifically for five loaves or whatever they have available. And this is a problem because Ahimelech doesn't have any common food. He doesn't have any bread that's just available to any. All that they have available is holy bread, the bread of the presence that would have been before uh, the Holy of Holies in the holy space in the tabernacle. It's been removed, but once it's removed, it's only supposed to be eaten by the Levitical priests in a state of ritual cleanliness. Now, the priest is willing because he understands, as Jesus would say later in Matthew 12, that the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. That certain of the ceremonial laws could be set aside in the interest of, of higher standards. You know, God commands explicitly, you shall not work on the Sabbath. Who works on the Sabbath? Well, the priests and the Levites, they work on the Sabbath. That there are exceptions to the Sabbath. If your animal falls into a well, you can rescue the animal, even though that might be tiring work. And so he's willing to make an exception because certainly David and the few men with him are hungry and in need of food as long as they were at least not in a state of ritual impurity. He couldn't expect them to follow all the laws, but hopefully they would be following what Deuteronomy 23 had instructed that the military, when they're on campaign, would be free of ritual uncleanliness due to intercourse. And David assures him this is surely the case. We're on the Lord's business. How much more so would we be holy than at other times? David finds food, but he's also weaponless. So he makes a request, and the only sword available to him is Goliath, and so now he's equipped with a weapon. Having been fed and been armed, he then begins to flee further south. And as he flees south, he ends up in Gath of all places, Gath has been mentioned in 1 Samuel already. Gath is the hometown of a certain giant whom David himself killed. But such is David's need that he flees to the land of the enemy of his more murderous enemy in hopes that he might find a temporary haven. Maybe David believes that he can sell his military prowess as a mercenary, maybe he just wants temporary haven. It's not exactly clear. But David has barely arrived when David is recognized. And, and here's the, the funny thing is that he's misidentified as the king. That the, the Philistines get something right for the wrong reasons. That they've heard the songs sung about David. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they make the assumption that David is the rightful king knowing that that would make him a risk, David decides to act as if he's crazy. He writes things upon the wall, basically. He, he is engaged in graffiti. He allows drool to go down on his beard, which would have been uh, something that no upstanding man in that day and age would have allowed. And so the, Akish, the king of Gath, has no interest in caring for a madman. He follows the taboo of of not putting to death or not harassing someone that's crazy and leaves David alone so that he can escape. 
And that might just seem like a series of events interspersed with a little bit of ceremonial law background and historical background. But what is the picture of David here? When we put these pieces together, we have David as a man on the run. He's desperate. He's hungry. So hungry that he goes to the priest and hope that the priest would have food. He's weaponless, without a means to protect himself and defend himself from those that might attack him. He's homeless, so he can't go to Bethlehem for safety. So lacking in shelter and security for him that he has to seek refuge and haven among those who have at times in the history of his people enslaved his own people. He's desperate. On the run. Powerless, dependent on others for his safety, security, feeding, and armament. For those that didn't witness these events, and the number of people would have been pretty small, most people would have been Israelites hearing about this afterwards. How the rise of David the king came about. How do you think they felt about such a portrait of their king? Would they be excited to hear that King David, who sits on the throne in Jerusalem, was so hungry that he needed to take bread from the temple? He had to play a trick or, or be unclear and potentially deceive the priest in order to get it, that, that he had no weapons of his own and that he fled to their very enemies acting like a crazy man. That's the king? That's who God has put on the throne? Compare that with Saul. A man from a rich, well-to-do family. A man physically head and shoulders above the other men. A man of physical power that projected military prowess. A man who, according to 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, was a handsome, good-looking man. This was a king like the other nations that the people demanded of Samuel and demanded of God. That's the king they wanted, a handsome, strong, daring-looking man. Now the Lord has appointed, anointed a new king for them, a man who, yes, has shown his military prowess on the battlefield, but at this point in his story is essentially homeless, powerless, and on the run. That is not the help we tend to look for. That is not how we tend to picture Prince Charming. And yet our true king comes in similar fashion. When a religious leader sought to follow after Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When Jesus described himself as the Son of God, when he drove out demons, people assumed that he was mad. The promised Messiah, the deliverer of God's people, the king in the line of David, was born in Bethlehem, but he had to flee to the land of the historic oppressors of his people, Egypt, in order to escape the king who wanted to take his life in Herod. 
this was not the king most people expected or wanted. This challenges our perception of what a leader, of what a rescuer looks like and should look like. About the way that we often want to fashion ourselves as leaders, as rescuers, as the person that can come in with the solution to the problem. Though God's hand of provision is surely with David, God provides bread and food for him. He provides shelter for him. He provides escape from the Philistines. He arms him with Goliath's sword. Why would God allow his anointed king to be in such desperate, humiliating circumstances? Maybe this story of David isn't just about the king, but also his people. After David leaves Philistine territory, he goes back into Israelite territory, back to his own country, and he takes refuge in a cave in Adullam. His family hears that he's back. They gather to him, likely for protection, because they're concerned about their own safety and what Saul might do to them, and so they gather at the cave as a potentially defensible position. But something interesting happens in verse 2. The earliest hints of a kingdom for David form as a large group of men. 400 men are, are listed here, but notice that they would have, A, been accompanied by their families, and 400 is probably those that he's militarily over. It uses the word all and every over and over again. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Who are the roots of David's kingdom? Who does God bring to David to lead? Those who are in distress and debt and bitter in soul. Those who are in trouble. Those who are financially under the heel of their creditors, who have lost their financial freedom and are stuck in debt. Those who are bitter of soul. And bitter of soul, that's how uh, Naomi described herself. She said, no longer call me Naomi, but call me Mara, because life has dealt bitterly with me. These are men and women on the edges of society who under the rule of Saul have experienced oppression and hardship and difficulty and want something different. If you were building a kingdom, if you were starting a revolution, if you were creating a new political party to fix what's broken in America, what kind of people would you want? What kind of people would you hope to show up to the planning meetings? Would it be the distressed and the indebted and the embittered? Yet these are whom David on the run has been prepared to receive and rule over. We don't know if they are who David would have wanted, but they are who God gave David. Men and women who knew their limits who had made mistakes, who had suffered, who were needy. Those who knew that the kingship, according to the ways of the nations, kingship under Saul did not work for them. Those who truly needed rescue, direction, provision, and rule. 
And so David becomes commander over them, the one to lead, guide, organize, and protect them. If what we read in 1 Samuel 21 challenges our understanding of the type of king and rescuer we want, 1 Samuel 22, as it opens up, challenges our sense of the king we need because it exposes our need. Those reading and hearing the beginnings of David's rule in the context of Israel would have seen their roots not among the the most handsome and attractive, not among the most powerful, not among the richest, but among the dregs of society, the outcasts. These were those that God gave to the king to establish a new kingdom. It confirms the message of God to Israel in Deuteronomy that he didn't save them, that he didn't enter into covenant relationship with them because they were big and powerful and more numerous than the other nations, but because they were weak and because they were needy and because they were small. And so those that came to David at the cave of Adullam, those prefigure those who would later gather to another anointed king around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said he didn't come to save the righteous and the happy and the healthy, the good-looking and the smart. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. When Jesus saw the crowds, the people that were following him, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When our king came, when there was nothing about his appearance that was attractive or special to the onlooker, when he was not raised in a courtly, rich family, when he was a laborer, and he's in Galilee, not Jerusalem, when our king came announcing his purpose, in Luke 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is that you? Is that me? Is that how we view ourselves? Because how we view ourselves will not only shape our understanding of how we are rescued, but whom God has sent us to proclaim the good news of rescue to. If we don't recognize that our king humbled himself to come for such as these, we will likely forget that it is to these that our king sends us to proclaim the good news. This is why, and I know many of you uh, are newer to the church and may not remember it, but the night that I was installed as pastor at this church, my good friend, Reverend Michael Langer, preached from this passage from 1 Samuel 22, especially verse 2, because he knew the temptation, even as a pastor, to want the church to be full of happy, shiny, well-educated, wealthy people because those are easy people to shepherd. It's much harder to shepherd sinful, broken, difficult people and therefore to limit my ministry and the ministry to the church to the people we want it to be for. If our church looks more like the king's court in Gibeah than the cave of Adullam, then we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. 
in David, a desperate king comes to gather and lead a desperate people. And begins to lay the groundwork for a new type of kingdom. But the question that needs to be asked is, is, do desperate times call for desperate measures? We aren't sure why David goes to Moab after Adalim. Maybe he feels that the threat is growing, that if people know he's at Adalim and are gathering to him, then it's likely that Saul will come after him. We're not quite sure, but he goes to Moab. You might remember that his great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. So probably because they're enemies of Saul and because there's some family connections, he goes there in the hopes that they might shelter his family, and so he sets up in the stronghold there. But there he is in the stronghold, having asked the king of Moab to keep his family safe, when verse 5 tells us, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. The language is strong here. This isn't a suggestion from Gad the prophet. This is an emphatic command, a command that is encouraged to be read as a corrective. Not, hey, everything's going okay. I've got a a new instruction for you. But, hey, you need to fix what's wrong. You need to leave the stronghold. This is bad. You need to go back to Judah. Why? Well, most likely because the Moabites were historical enemies of God's people. Deuteronomy 23 outlined that it was inappropriate for God's people to enter into contracts and relationships and to intermarry with the Moabites as their enemies. And so if David is trusting the Moabite king entering into a contract for him to provide protection and refuge for his family, he is going against God's law. And if nothing else, God has spoken through the prophet at this time that he needs to leave. So what does David do? He has refuge. He's outside the sway of Saul's influence. He has protection. He's in a stronghold, a fortress that would have been difficult to attack. He has found safety, not in his homeland, but in the land of his historic enemies. He's been betrayed by his own king. What does he do? He obeys. He goes back to the place where he's in greater danger. Why? Because unlike the habits of King Saul, David heeds the command of the true king of Israel, Yahweh. That the anointed king recognizes the kingship of the Lord God. His response probably shouldn't surprise us because when the prophet Ahimelech asked him about the ritual cleanliness of his men, he said, I can assure you that we have followed the laws of God. And in fact, in, in all of the details of, of the great, horrible uh, description, the debacle of, of what happens with David and Bathsheba, in, in the course of that story, it records for us that Uriah, one of David's mighty men, doesn't go home to Bathsheba because he has been so trained to uphold God's law of ritual cleanliness when he's engaged in warfare. David may be in danger. 
leading a group of outcasts and discontents, but that is not an excuse to ignore the word of the law, the commands of his king. David may be anointed to be king, but he is still under authority. Because ultimately, David isn't leading a revelation, excuse me, a revolution. David is leading a restoration. One history article says this, by the time the reign of terror reached its conclusion in July 1794, some 17,000 people had been officially executed, and as many as 10,000 had died in prison or without trial. The French revolutionary government had devoured its own in spectacular fashion. That movement that started with a storming of Bastille because there were those imprisoned as political enemies of the king that, that was supposed to be this great start of freedom began to consume itself as each wave of new revolutionaries mistrusted the former and locked them in jail and, and put them to death. Revolution without a sense of what is right, revolution for the sake of revolution, consumes itself. But David's leadership, as he's leading the desperate, as he's leading the oppressed, isn't to say that your oppression, that your struggle, that your anger, that your difficult circumstances justifies you doing what you want. He doesn't give vent to the frustration. He doesn't respond to injustice by oppressors by showing injustice to the oppressors. It wasn't like Saul, who was called to fight the fire of the nations with the fire of a king like the nations. No, his kingship would be established not in being like the nations, but being distinct from the nations because he observed that God was king first and foremost. Jesus didn't come to the sinners, to the outcasts and the rejects, and then serve them by abolishing the law, but to fulfill it on their behalf and lead them by his spirit in order that they might walk in newness of life according to God's laws. Jesus doesn't come to us to leave us where we're at, but he comes as our king to transform us into a new kingdom, one that reflects what we were meant to be, a kingdom experiencing the justice, safety, peace experienced under the rightful king, God himself. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is not a fairy tale. David is not Prince Charming. Those that he comes to lead and rescue are not beautiful damsels in distress, full of songs spoken to the cute and fuzzy animals. But they do have a similar ending. That when the prince rescues the damsel, they live happily ever after. And when our king humbles himself, taking on the firm form of a servant, in order that he would die having ministered to the sinners and the sick and the oppressed and the unjust, he doesn't leave them there. But he comes to transform them so that one day those whom he rescues will indeed be a bride spotless without blemish presented to himself. This is the good news 
that the king who humbles himself is enabled to rescue a humiliated and humbled and sinful and broken people so that they would be led to experience the goodness of life under the true king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is good. Bless us, not only in what we've heard this morning, but in the ability to respond by your Spirit's help according to the truth for your glory as your servants, for you are the King. Amen.